For us, we will be in Psalm 16, as was just mentioned. So I want to invite you to join me there. Uh, That is found, by the way, on page 477 of the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to choose to use that. And uh, may I also mention, uh, if for whatever reason uh, you don't have a a copy of God's Word in your home, particularly a a translation that is readable, kind of in, in more modern English, Uh, you are more than welcome to take uh, that copy home with you uh, that you find in the pew. But we are on page 477 in Psalm 16, and I would like to invite you all to stand as we read it together. This is a psalm of David, and he writes, Protect me, God, for I I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another god for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future." The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the the Lord guide me, because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal treasures. Pleasures, excuse me. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. I also want to, again, just invite those of you who are perhaps visiting with us for the first time. Uh, that you would please take a moment while you're with us to fill out the guest card. You'll find those in little pockets in the pew in front of you, and that you would uh, fill that out, bring that to our Welcome Center in the foyer, and uh, just give us a record of your visit. Please make sure you indicate any ministries that you'd like more information about, any ways we can be of service to you and to your family. Uh, That would be our pleasure. Well, this is a big weekend uh, for me, uh, for my family. Uh, You know, it's always a joy to gather together with this church family in this place together to worship the Lord, to hear from His Word, but uh, this uh, this weekend just has special significance. Uh, Today, uh, believe it or not, uh, is the very first wedding anniversary uh, for our daughter and her husband, Zach, and so we are just rejoicing and thankful to the Lord that He's brought them to that first milestone in what we pray will be uh, a long life together. Uh, Because of that, last night we finally had the reception that we were supposed to have a year ago, had originally planned and envisioned a year ago, and so that was just a lot of fun. And we had a lot of family and friends uh, really brought together the threads of our lives from all kinds of different uh, eras. Uh, We've got uh, some guests here this morning from our church family back in Virginia uh, that we knew back at that time. I promised not to point her out, so uh, I'm not going to do that to her. 
Uh, my parents are here, and, and just, it's just been a great time. And then to top it all off, tomorrow uh, is my wife's birthday, and so she's finally reaching 29. It's, you know, it's been a while. She's, she's finally getting there. Uh, so just a great, great weekend. And now to top it all off, we really we get a chance to go through this psalm together. And as I was studying this psalm, looking it over, uh, this image, go ahead and put that painting up there, uh, Grant. Uh, this image kind of came to mind. Um, I'm a big Norman Rockwell fan. Um, I'm not sure if that's allowed or not, but we're going to say it. Um, you know, just enjoyed um, seeing all those beautiful paintings he would paint for the Saturday Evening Post, I think it was. Uh, but I love this one. This one is called Coming and Going. And the reason why it's called Coming and Going, as you might see from the picture, is that, of course, in the top, the family is going, is, is coming to the place where they're going to have vacation. They are on the road, ready to have an adventure together. And then on the bottom, as you might tell, they're on their way home. It's all over. And I love to use this picture when I'm teaching about a particular method of Bible study, inductive Bible study. And the reason why I like to use this image is because inductive Bible study is made up of three basic parts or steps. Uh, observation, interpretation, and application. And you really can't do interpretation properly, and you certainly don't know how to apply anything if you haven't first observed well. And so I think this is a good uh, practice run on that, because when I'm talking with folks about that, I like to point out that, you know, we like to observe all the differences. You know, dad is, is, man, he's got his stogie, he's determined, he's, man, he's ready to get there, he knows where he's going. Uh, the dog is excited. Uh, I don't know what the boy in the back is doing, but, you know, they're just all ready to go. And then you see all the contrast. You know, the boy that in the back that was just all excited is now comatose, it seems, <laughs> there in the back seat. And the dog's tongue is hanging out. And mom is just, you know, asleep. And, and I love looking at the dad. The dad is the one that really gets me. It speaks to me, of course, as a husband and father. Doesn't that face say, I have to go to work tomorrow morning? <laughs> so you just observe all those details. And I, I bring that up because this morning I want us to look at Psalm 16 kind of from that perspective, through the lens, so to speak, of summer travel. It is that season, right? We've all been on and off the road. I'm sure we all have different kinds of travel plans, perhaps still yet to come. I know what my wife and I are looking forward to it a trip uh, later on this summer. But during the summer, many times, families will travel. The summer is, is when that's going on. And so whenever you travel, there's lots of things to plan. There's lots of things to prepare. And those preparations can make or break your trip, can't they? Oh, you don't want to forget something very important. You don't want to not make that arrangement in advance. You don't want to make, sh you don't want to leave any detail overlooked. And it, it got me thinking, you know, a lot of people in our culture uh, really emphasize the journey. You know, they really say, hey, just enjoy the journey. That's what really matters. You know, don't worry about where you're going. Make sure that you just enjoy the journey. And then there are other people who say, no, no, uh, get where you're going. And so I want to look at Psalm 16 kind of in light of that. And so beginning in verse 1 and verses 1 and 2, uh, I'd like to present the first of, I, I think, some good travel advice 
that David would give us, perhaps on the basis of this psalm. The first is to find a good road. When you're traveling, may you better find a good road. Now, I'm not much of a, a road nerd myself. Um, I, I looked up, I tried to find a word that would mean like student of roads, and there, I don't think that it exists. If you know of it, let me know later. But uh, one thing I've learned about roads is that the subgrade is very important. I don't want to get too technical, but basically the road that you and I drive on to and from work, to and from uh, church, you know, here this morning, uh, that surface is, is literally just the surface. And below that are multiple levels of various different kinds of prepared surfaces and, and ground. And the very bottom, subgrade. And so if anything isn't done right there, the problems are going to be visible and you're going to get, get problems in the surface of the road. So oftentimes it's way under there. And I mention that because I find a foundation laid for us in what David later calls in verse 11, the path of life. Uh, by the way, speak, speaking of, of good roads, bad roads, um, you know, being a frequent traveler, annual traveler in many cases to Moldova, a country I love, people that I love, we have wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ in Moldova, but it is known for its roads and not in a good way. Uh, they, will, they will jolt you, they will jump you around, you will get a good workout just riding down the road. And I don't want to just pick on Moldova, even, I must say, if there is one thing, you know, no place is perfect, but if there's one thing about my own native Pennsylvania, man, sometimes I feel like I'm back in Moldova riding around in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable. But David has left, laid a foundation for us here. He begins in verses 1 and 2 in the ways he refers to God. In verse 1, the Hebrew word El. El is kind of a generic word for God, kind of like when, you know, the, the rock star goes up to receive his Grammy or her Grammy, and, and she walks up to the podium and says, I just want to thank God for allowing me to release this album where I blaspheme his name and, and I undermine everything he, he stands for, you know, but they're thanking God, so, you know, that makes it okay. That's the generic term. God, David in that first verse is saying, protect me, God. He's, he's reaching out, he's crying out to God, for I take refuge in you. And then in verse 2, he, he is the first time we see him use the word that's translated, Lord. I said to the Lord. And in that instance, uh, he is using the personal name for God, Yahweh, or the Latinization of that, um, Jehovah. So, this is the personal name of God that God revealed to Moses in the third chapter of Exodus. And so he's appealing to God by calling out his personal name, Yahweh. And then in the second use of Lord, uh, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, he's using the term Adonai. Adonai is more of a title, uh, a designation, a title of authority. So he's calling him Lord or Master. So another way to render uh, verse 1 and 2 would be, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Jehovah, just use the pulpit mic. Um, I said to Jehovah, or Yahweh, you are my master. I have nothing good besides you. So this, this also, to me, connects with Jesus. In his presentation of the gospel, as he began his earthly ministry, we, we see that he is... Uh, said to present the gospel this way in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. He says, repent 
and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. All of Jesus' message, what he was preaching, what he entrusted to the apostles, could boil down to two things, repentance and faith. And that's what we see here in verses 1 and 2. We see repentance when David says to God, you are my Lord. That's a, a form of repentance. Think about it. Sin, by its very nature, means that we as human beings, we are, we are going our way, right? As Mr. Sinatra would often say, I, we're going my way. And my way leads to hell. My way is where I'm the king, I'm in charge, I'm on the throne. But when we repent, we turn our backs on all of that. And we, we begin a new path in life. We follow a new way, and that is the Lord's way. And we say, no, no, this isn't my crown, God, this is your crown. We say, no, Jesus, this isn't my throne, this is your throne. And so that's what David's saying here. He is making very clear, you are my Lord. He's also expressing great faith. He, when he finds himself in trouble, and we don't know the exact occasion that caused this psalm to be written, uh, but when he finds himself in trouble, in need, when he is helpless to save himself, where does he turn? He appeals to the Lord. He says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. That's where he turns. Where do you turn when you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself helpless to face what life is bringing you? David is turning to the Lord in faith. He turns to him and says, protect me, God. He also says, I have nothing good besides you. The gospel is exclusive. This is one of the things that is most offensive about it because we live in a world that wants everything customized, right? We've got the ability to just change everything. Oh, I I don't want that shirt shirt in red. I want it in blue. Oh, I, I want a different image on my watch today. I want a different thing on my phone. I want to, I want to have oatmeal with raisins. I want to hope oatmeal without raisins. I don't want any oatmeal at all. Thank you very much. You know, so we want everything customized to, according to whatever our whims or fancies are in that particular moment. So here comes Jesus in John chapter 14, verse six, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim, and David identifies this. He says, I have nothing good besides you, God. God is the source of all good things. James chapter 1, verse 17 uh, tells us this. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do you have good things in your life? Are you on a good road? Well, then thank the Lord. So that's where David begins. But then in verse 3, you could hear him saying, bring the right companions. So you're going on a trip. You've got to find the good road. You also have to bring the right companions. In verse 3, he says, as for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All of my delight is in them. We looked at something similar last week in Psalm 15. David expresses that all his delight is in the holy people who are in the land. He calls them noble ones. So, who do you roll with? Who's in your squad? What are your squad goals? Let me translate. Who are in your circle of friends? 
Who are the people whose opinions you care about? Where, who influence your decisions and choices? Oh, I think I'll wear that. I think that so-and-so will like that today. Or, oh, I don't know if I should do that. So-and-so won't like that. Whose opinions, whose character, whose values are influencing and shaping and, and rubbing off on you? The Bible often points out the benefits and wisdom of being choosy about those who are closest to you. We're not talking about excluding others just because, oh, they're not a Christian or something. No, in fact, we're called, of course, to do exactly the opposite, to take the gospel to those who don't have it. But we are told to be choosy about those who are closest to us who are going to have an influence on us. Proverbs 27, verse 17, well-known verse, as our... Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In other words, good friends make you better. I'm not talking about networking. I'm not talking about advancing your career by manipulating others or using others. What, what we're talking about here, the wisdom of Proverbs 27, 17, is that good friends make you better. They, by their presence, by their influence in your life, they should inspire you. They should encourage you to grow and to become more Christ-like. Proverbs 17, verse 17, similarly says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. In other words, real friends go through it all. They're not going to just abandon you when, when things get hard. They're going to stick with you. They're going to support you. Proverbs 12, verse 25, Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers cheers it up. Good word. That implies relationship. It implies living life with one another in such a way that you actually know when things are going well and when things aren't going well. This is a a verse that, that reminds us that sin loves and thrives in isolation. And as we were challenged last Sunday about being a church family where it is safe to confess our sins to one another, Again, not saying that that has to be a public thing, okay? Uh, We are challenged by Matthew 18, by Christ himself, to say, hey, if somebody is rebelling and saying, openly sinning and saying, no, I don't have a problem, this isn't wrong, then we have to bring it to the church in a more public manner. But otherwise, if you win your brother or sister, he says, when there's just two or three of you, then, hey, it's done. You don't have to handle this anymore. We're challenged to do that in relationship with one another. And Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 12, 25 reminds us that when we live life together, when we are able to be transparent with one another, at least with a few trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, sin shrinks away because it's exposed in the light of your fellowship. And that good word cheers up even the most anxious heart. Bring the right companions on this journey of life that you find yourself on. David's next piece of travel advice is to avoid the wrong way. In verse 4, he writes, The sorrows of those who take another god for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. I know, uh, saying avoid the wrong way, it, it, it might seem pretty obvious at first. Until you realize that everyone around us is going the wrong way. Until you realize that common sense, turns out, isn't all that common. So here we are in verse 4, and we begin to see most clearly why the destination really does matter. 
and how making it to the right destination is interconnected. It's interdependent with the journey that we take. In Psalm 15, David uses some pretty strong language here in verse 4. Excuse me, Psalm 16 of verse 4. Uh, he refuses to participate in their practices. That is, again, he's talking about people who have taken another god. So he refuses to participate in their rituals, their practices. He says, I'm not going to have any part of that. In fact, he says, I'm not even going to speak their names. Their names aren't even going to cross my lips. And you know what? He's not wrong. Paul gives us this counsel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals come to your senses and stop sinning for some people are ignorant about God I say this to your shame there are a variety of reasons why we may endure suffering it may be the consequence of somebody else's actions you might go into work tomorrow and find out oh so and so mismanaged the company lost the contract and now you're out looking for another job it had nothing to do with you you did what you were supposed to do Sometimes suffering is the consequence of others. Sometimes suffering is a result of refinement or discipline from the Lord. Again, these are different reasons. We don't always understand why we're going through what we're going through. But sometimes, sometimes what we're experiencing is the fruit of our own wandering, our own unfaithfulness to the Lord. And in those times, we experience what all those apart from Christ know as daily normal life. They don't just have sorrows, their sorrows multiply. One thing leads to another, and then to two more, and then to four more. Remember, most of the gods that we need to watch out for do not sit in temples and do not take form as statues. The gods that we need to be wary of sit in this temple. The gods that we need to be wary of take the form of material comforts or they run for office. Of course, the god we must be most on guard against is in the mirror. So this is how sin works in our lives. One thing can never just be one thing. One thing always leads to another. And we do this for the sake of such fleeting, momentary experiences And as a result, we reap ongoing, multiplying disaster. Now, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, clarifies the source of this in our lives. James writes, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. We have many examples of sin's cascading effects all around us and in our own lives. Please, please understand this. Sin is never about just you. It will always have spillover effects into the lives of others. You can't say, no, I'm hey, I'm not working tomorrow, I'm just going to have a few more of these. You can't, it, you can't necessarily say, and it's not going to hurt anybody, you can't necessarily say, oh, I'm just going to go to this website, I'm going to watch this video, and not understand that there are going to be ripple effects and ramifications in the lives of others, in all the different choices we make. 
Marital infidelity doesn't just happen. And it isn't just something that is contained even to the two spouses who are impacted. It has far-reaching effects that reach into one generation after the other, grandchildren who are suddenly going to multiple homes, all kinds of different things that are consequences that could be, that result from those kinds of selfish choices made. made. You can look at substance abuse issues, and I don't have any one particular in mind. It could be alcohol, it could be recreational drugs, it could be pornography. But whatever it might be, those things, those choices, don't just contain themselves within the life of the person who commits the sin. There are ripple effects that affect other people's lives. We have to be aware of that. Bottom line, David says, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves, and again, that God is so often us in the mirror, that those sorrows will multiply. Count on it, David says. Now, no wonder then that David says, no way. I'm not taking that shortcut that those others took. Those practices, those rituals, their names, I'm not even going to speak their names. Now, I, want to, I don't want to jump ahead, but I do want to point out that nothing, again, nothing is beyond God. Nothing is beyond his grace. He can and does redeem and restore. I've seen it multiple times right here in this church. All those instances I just named, infidelity, substance abuse, he has brought people back. But that, that moves me on to, to something else that uh, David has to say here. You know, there's a certain way that I pray uh, before I get on an airplane. Now, I don't know why I don't do this more often when I drive or am driven somewhere. But when I get in an, uh, an airplane, I, uh, I have quite the prayer list. I pray for the designers. <laughs> uh, that first draft... Okay, that they didn't overlook something important. I pray for the manufacturers, for the men and women who were on the line that day, that they had good days when they were putting that bolt and that rivet in. I I, I pray for the ground crew that are fueling the plane, that are checking the tire pressure, that are visually inspecting the plane. You ever hear that? Oh, oh, the, the ground crew is visually, that's why we haven't taken off yet, passengers. They're visually inspecting, making sure we didn't, you know, Nothing's cracked, you know, nothing's... Uh, the, the maintainers, the people who fix the plane between flights and, and while it's on downtime, and, of course, the pilots and the crew. So that's a long pr- prayer list. But that's just me. I, I, I enjoy traveling, but when I pray, I'm praying for all those folks. Why am I doing that? Well, I'm doing that because I want... To, I realize, as David points out to us here, that we need to use reliable transportation. When you're traveling, you need reliable transportation you know people are drawn you know in their cars they're drawn to luxury they're drawn to technology all the bells and whistles but all we really need is a safe ride from point a to point b right reliable transportation david in verses five through eight praises the lord for four blessings that he has received as a result of his right relationship with the lord they form a sort of vehicle carrying him through his life Clearly, he has what he needs as he follows the Lord. Now, notice, these are things that he has in life now. These are not things that he is anticipating in eternity, that he just has to wait for someday. These are blessings carrying him to eternity. And in that, we have these four things. First, in verse 5, he cites his secure satisfaction. 
secure satisfaction. In verse 5, he says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. He says the Lord is two things. He says the Lord is my portion. My portion. In other words, this is a man who says, I'm not counting anything else. I don't care what I'm driving. I don't care what my house looks like, how much land I own. Whatever. The Lord is my portion. I'm satisfied with him. If I never go on a tra- trip again, another vacation again, if I never have the best car, if I never have this, if I never have that, it's okay because the Lord is my portion. He is my secure uh, portion that I am satisfied in. He says the Lord is his cup of blessing. Now, we don't know when this psalm was written, but for most of his adult life, David was the king of Israel. And while he was not as wealthy or prosperous as his own son Solomon one day would be, David, for much of his life, lacked nothing. And with all of that, David says, the Lord is my cup of blessing. So he cites that secure satisfaction. It's, it's that feeling you have about your favorite mechanic or doctor or, or pet caretaker. You, you wouldn't go to anyone else, right? You have secure satisfaction in that person. It's like a, a vehicle interior where everything is located exactly where you like it and the engine gives you all the power you need. You get, oh, this, this, is what I, this is what I got. I got what I need. David also talks about his perfect contentment in the Lord. In verse 6, he writes, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You say, well, on the one hand, what do you expect the king to say? You know, he's, he's got all the land. He's got all the stuff. Everything's about him. It's his kingdom. But boundary lines were very important to Hebrews, as they are to most of us. Of course, we watch our property lines. But the land was central to their shared heritage and identity. I think about Hebrew children living in enslaved households in Egypt. Growing up, night after night, moms putting them to sleep, telling them, there is a promised land. One day, we're going back. One, here's what it's like. It's flowing with milk and honey. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful place. We're going to have cities there. We're going to have vineyards there just one day. And that might have been halfway through the 400 years. And so for centuries, those children would hear, one day the promised land, one day the promised land. This was very important to them. And we know from, fall, from 1 Samuel chapter 16 that David was, one of, was the youngest of eight boys. He was going to have to fend for himself in the world. Oldest sons inherited the bulk, certainly the best, possibly all, of their father's estate. David was the runt of the litter and would see little to nothing of whatever his father Jesse had in this world. But David says here that he has a beautiful inheritance. And here's the thing. All of this is under God's control. Where and when we live, all so many details of our lives. In verse uh, 26 and 27 of Acts chapter 17, Paul was standing in the city of Athens in ancient Greek, Greece. And this is what he said to them. He said, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. 
He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul was pointing out that when we come to the end of our own human limitations, when we recognize that, you know, I'm helpless, I I can't do any more, there are things out of my control, what am I going to do? When we come to those limitations as human beings, Paul says, that's, that's intentional. God built that into life so that as we come to those limitations and the ends of ourselves, we are forced to go back and say, okay, who's up there? And we begin to search for our creator and begin to get to know him and and begin to rely on him. Now you say, you know, okay, David says he's got these great boundaries, a beautiful inheritance. Only someone who's living their best life could write something like that. Well, think again. The Apostle Paul, rotting in a Roman jail and rightfully expecting to suffer and die as a result of his imprisonment, wrote this in Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I now know how to do with little, and I know how to do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Perfect contentment rests and trusts in God. It's like comfy seats with the perfect lumbar support. And I need the lumbar support. So that's important. The third thing, the third blessing that David points out in verse 7 is the, the Lord's soothing counsel. He writes, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Now last week we talked about those questions that keep us up at night, right? Like where does the recycle bin go when we delete it? You know, stuff like that. Why does that happen? Well, it happens for a variety of reasons, I'm sure, but one of the reasons that happens is because, partly because our hearts are deceitful. Our own hearts lie to us. So sometimes, like I know the winter of 2015, 2016, I was experiencing panic attacks, my heart was racing, I was losing sleep at night. What was going on? Well, part of what was going on in my heart and mind was I was losing track of what Paul just said, of how God's sovereignty manages and cares for me in so many instances, and I was worrying about things, right? My heart was deceiving me, saying, hey, kid, you're on your own. you got to figure this out, stuff like that. But Jeremiah, in verse 9 of chapter 17, reminds us, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who understands it? Instead of relying on himself, David received soothing counsel from the Lord. I think that's like a good suspension system and a great set of tires. The fourth blessing he identifies in his life, right here, right now, is God's divine guidance. In verse 8, he writes, I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, this is less about God telling you, do this or do that. It's, it's really less about him leading you to specific choices, although he can. Okay, I'm not saying he can't or won't. Uh, you know, but many of us, when we think about God's guidance, when we think about God's will, we try to kind of boil it down to, you know, okay, God, should I marry this person or not marry this person? Should I take this job or not take this job? We kind of, you know, should I, should I eat the chalupa 
or just get the taco pack? You know, I mean, we just kind of boil down to all these, should I do this? Should I? And I want to do exactly what the Lord wants me to do. And all. I don't know that it really comes down to that. I really believe this is more what we were just looking at uh, with Paul and with these other passages, that we're talking about confidence in the sovereign grace of the Lord, that he does have our future in his hands. Trusting in that. Romans chapter 8, we're not going to read through it, don't, don't get nervous. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is just a wonderful testimony to that. I would definitely recommend any time that you're feeling unsure about this, struggling with doubts, struggling with fears, go to Romans chapter 8, a wonderful encouragement. But I do want to read Psalm 23, because again, this does remind us about the value of God's divine guidance. Psalm 23, of course, is is a classic passage of scripture that comforts many of us at times of loss of loved ones. But David, David wrote this as well, and this is what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the... The valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. See, the key is God is guiding you, not I'm going to guide myself and God, you just need to come behind me, clean up the messes, or or you just need to show up like the genie and just kind of make this turn out the way I want it. God is the one guiding. So is the Lord at your right hand? Because if he is, the result will be like a GPS system that never steers you wrong, saves you time, and always saves you gas. So are you using reliable transportation? Is this how you would describe your life right now? David continues in verses 9 and 10. I like to call this get good directions. Get good directions. In verse 5, David said that the Lord held his future. To have a good, relaxing time on on a trip, you know what you need? You need to know where you're going. There's nothing that robs your sense of peace and enjoyment and like anticipation. Oh, this is going to be a great trip. I can't wait to get there. If you're going, I don't know how to get there. If you're worried about that, if you're concerned about that, that robs you of that joy. So, you know, even with GPS and other navigation aids, you know, driving, going in a familiar place is always much easier than being somewhere I've never been before. I think I can tell this story now. It's been a few years. No one died. No one got disfigured. So we can tell it. We can laugh about it now. Uh, But maybe eight, ten years ago, we were on a missions trip in Ohio. And uh, on that trip, uh, I'm not exactly known for my direction finding. And we were going to pick up a block party trailer for some activities in the week. And we stopped for directions because on the way back, I had gotten lost. And I followed those directions, and we ended up in Kentucky. <laughs> so I've got these three, three of the teams were with me, the rest of the group was somewhere else, and, and we were like, 
and, and you know, they're, they're riding in the back, and they're just laughing at me, and there's um, Pastor Allen. Um, we're in Kentucky. We're, not, we're supposed to be in Ohio, not Kentucky. Um, so directions are important. Directions are very important. Following those directions are important. And David points that out to us. In verse 9, he says he has total serenity. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole heart, my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. When you have that good road beneath you, when you have trustworthy, like-minded companions beside you, and all the blessings of faith in the Lord, you have total serenity. That's what the therefore is therefore, by the way. David is saying, all these things I've told you about, this is why I can, uh, my heart is glad, my, my whole being rejoices, my body rests securely. And why wouldn't he feel this way? He knows where he's going. He has a good idea how this ends for him. And that leads him to have eternal confidence. In verse 10, he writes, For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Good directions give you confidence where others have fear. And that should be a hallmark characteristic of Christians. I'm not talking about the Christmas movies or the ornaments. I'm saying a hallmark characteristic of Christians should be that regardless of the outcome of the election, regardless of the dangers of the global pandemic or the direction the nation's heading, Christians should go, you know what? Yeah, I still have the ground under my feet. I still know whose world this is. So verse 10 is very important because it's not only about David envisioning his own death, it's a messianic prophecy pointing to the death and resurrection of Christ himself. David was allowed to see something else about the Messiah who was partially his descendant. This is picked up on a couple of times in the book of Acts from Peter and Paul. Paul himself in Acts chapter 13, verses 35 through 37, says, Therefore he uh, says in another passage, that is David, says in another passage, You will not let your Holy One see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his brothers, and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. He's talking about Jesus, of course. This is something Job observed even way back when that was written in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 19. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand upon the dust, that is the earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look upon him, and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. So what do you think? What matters more, the journey or the destination? Why do we need a good road and right companions and to avoid the wrong way, to use reliable transportation and get good directions? Why, why is all that important? Because the destination matters most. This is where our hope is. This is what all those blessings are about. David writes in verse 11, you, will, you reveal the path of life to me in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is called the path of life for a reason. For David and for all those who know and love the Lord, the destination is not a place as much as it is a person. It is God's presence. In your presence, he writes, is abundant joy. Abundant, that word takes on a new meaning for us, I hope, now. So many times we've experienced things over the past year that we probably most of us never thought we would experience. 
I remember going grocery shopping for the first time early in the pandemic with my daughter, and we were going around, and I was just telling her, I've never seen this in my life in this country. Just empty shelves and things. Coming home, saying to my wife, yeah, I couldn't get half the grocery list. It just wasn't in the store. Abundance should mean something new to us. And joy, joy is not just mere happiness based on circumstances of what's happening in our lives. Joy is enduring. So to have abundant joy, David says that is what we find when we are in God's presence. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. These are eternal. They're not fleeting. They're not temporary. They're not like your sports team who might have a good season here or there. And then, you know, they're in the basement for 10 years. This is, this is about eternity. All, they say all, thing, all good things come to an end. Not with the Lord. Not with the Lord they don't. And pleasures, Christians, if you think about it, Christians are the only ones in the world really pursuing worthwhile pleasures. Pleasures that last, that glorify the Lord, that are truly satisfying. The destination, let me encourage you, truly does matter. It matters that you arrive alive, that you get there. We've, just in the prayer today, we cited many examples of this. You know, Danny Smith, Peggy Thompson, Peggy Smolarski. Uh, these were men and women who knew the Lord. And because of that, man, it makes the world of difference as we think about and face their passing and their loss. My own grandmother died this past January, the day after we held the service for Danny. And I didn't cry that day for her. I cried for family that don't know Jesus. And when I had the chance to speak to them, I talked to them about the queen, because that's what we called my grandmother, the queen. And I reminded them that God saved the queen. You know how they say that, God saved the queen? He really did. He really did. And I told them that, you know, for those occasions, those funerals, celebrations of life, whatever you want to call it, when you reach those moments, those occasions, I said, look, th- this, this moment here is one of two things to us. It is either goodbye or it is see you later. And for me, I'm going to see her again. It was a see you later moment for me. But for those who don't know Christ, that moment was goodbye. It was their last time to be with her. Jesus asked us a very important question in Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? The destination matters. Faith in Christ is what makes the difference. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that we can rely on you. That you have our whole lives, including our futures, in your hands. And those futures are secure. Lord, we are so grateful for that truth. It is a comfort for those of us who hold that faith and trust in Christ. But Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has never yet put their faith in Christ, We pray that today would be that day. And Lord, for those of us who perhaps have wandered away from that, we've gotten lost. Maybe we didn't even realize we were lost. We thought we were just going along. We were going to get there eventually. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes and call us back. 
Lord, however you want to work in our lives, we pray this this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So where is your life going? What's your destination? Is, are you living by the motto, aim for nothing and you'll hit it? If you've lost your way, come back. You know the Father is looking for you. And if you have never put your faith in Christ, I'm not kidding. Let's not let today pass. Come and talk to me. Call, talk to one of our elders. Talk to the, the Christian in the pew right next to you. Talk to someone. Find out about this path of life and how it can be yours today.